chapter 13. I'm going to read out of John chapter 2 as well, if you want to put your finger in both places. And I'm going to read that in just a minute, but I'm going to start by reading something um, that was written by our spiritual forefathers here at High Point 60 years ago. So 60 years ago, um, a two-year-old fundamentalist Baptist church on the east side of town, which is now called Monona Oaks, planted a church on the west side of town, which was named Middleton Baptist, which met in a little house. And then the men one summer just built a church that is now um, Asbury United Methodist Church on university. And then in 91, we came here and started doing this thing. Um, and uh, I, want, I actually want to start reading this in services as like a shared confession of the covenant of us being part of a church together. I'm going to read it to you right now. This is what they said. You tell me if this is any good. The church covenant is a statement of individual commitment to membership in High Point Church. So if you're a member, this is what you're committing to at this church and have been for 60 years. Having been led by the Holy Spirit to receive Jesus Christ as Savior and to confess Him as Lord, and upon confession of this faith, having been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we do now, in the presence of God and this assembly, most solemnly and joyfully covenant with one another as one body in Christ to lead a life worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. We promise, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, to forsake the ways of sin and to walk together in Christian love and in the paths of righteousness. With this in view, we agree to strive together for both the peace and purity of this church, to sustain its worship, and steadfastly to cherish and hold its ordinances, discipline, and doctrines, to contribute as faithful stewards such time, talent, and money in the measure that God prospers each of us, that the responsibility for the work of the local church and the worldwide ministry of spreading the gospel be faithfully and effectively discharged. We also agree to maintain family and private devotions, to teach the Bible to our children, to—remember, this is the individual commitment every member, every member makes. I mean, let me start this paragraph again. We also agree to maintain family and private devotions, to teach the Bible to our children, to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances, to be just in our dealings and faithful in our engagements, to be exemplary in our conduct, to avoid all worldly practices which bring reproach, unkind words, and unrighteous anger. We also desire, by God's help, to avoid all worldly practices which bring reproach to the cause of Christ, and to be zealous in our efforts to advance the kingdom of our Savior. We further agree to give and receive, admonish, receive admonition with meekness and affection, to remember each other in prayer, and to aid each other in the case of sickness and distress, to cult cultivate Christian sympathy and feeling and courtesy and speech. We commit to be slow to take offense, but always ready for reconciliation, to seek it without delay, and be mindful of the scriptures. We moreover agree that we should move from this place— if we move from this place, we will, as soon as possible, unite with some local church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of the Word of God. I can't write a better one than that. Right? Um, that was written 60 years ago by um, most of whom who are here for that aren't here now. Some of the last saints that were part of that generation have passed away just in the last couple of years, and their desire when they planted this church was not that it would just be a church for their generation, but it would be—it would have sustained renewal in the Middleton, Madison area for, they hoped, 
until the return of Jesus, which could be in 20 minutes, um, or it could be um, 20,000 years from now. We don't know if we're in the last days of the last days or in the first days of the early church. Right? And so one of the things that we have to pursue is this question of like, how, how can we— how can we so live, not just to have, like, spiritual renewal right this minute, really feel like we are close to God, we're following God together, we're seeking the renewal of God in our hearts, but, but we're doing it in such a way that it could be sustained for our whole generation. But not only that, many times in the Bible, God would do something really amazing, and it would last for that generation. But it doesn't get passed on to the kids. Because they didn't experience whatever that experience was. And then they walk away from the Lord. They don't remember the things. They, they don't— they don't have that same faith. They don't experience the ongoing spiritual renewal. So what do we need? One of the things we talked about was that in um, Nehemiah 13, there's five things that actually go the wrong way that Nehemiah tries to readdress so that the spiritual renewal that had been going on for 20 or 30 years could go on for another generation as he's coming to the end of his own generation. L last week we talked about it was purity, that if you don't start with a ferocious purity toward God, Nothing else is going to matter. The other four things are basically just examples of ferocious purity, right? And the one for this morning is integrity and leadership. So let me read this passage for you. Before this, Eliashib the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings, the incense, and the temple articles, and also the tithes of grain, the new wine, and the olive oil prescribed for the Levites, munitions, mus munitions, <laughs> musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while I was, while this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For the 32nd year of King Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king, and sometime later, I asked permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Elisha had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room, gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back to them the equipment of the house of God, the grain offerings, and the incense. <clears throat> okay, so— Here's what happens, right? Nehemiah is going to leave. When the revival was happening, one of the things that they did is they put people in charge of stuff that, to take leadership so that the things they decided they were going to do and they were going to do over a long period of time, somebody was in charge of it. Somebody was making sure it was actually happening. Right? That was their job. It's their stewardship is a Christian word, right? I don't own it, but I'm 100% in charge of it before God, right? And what we find out is, is that this, this priest, Eliashib. Now, we don't know if he's the same high priest who was the first guy to start building the wall in chapter 3, or the high priest that's mentioned later, but he has the same name. It's decently likely it's a family name. So either this is a guy who's been the high priest, he's got all the spiritual clout in the world, he's older now, he gets put in charge of this thing, and he corrupts it. Or this is like the guy's grandson, who's a priest, who has the same name, and because his granddaddy was the high priest, he can do this. But either way, whichever he is, um, he pretty quickly corrupts his charge. He's been given this trust and authority and responsibility, and it's actually a really big one, right? It says that this is the store, these are the storerooms that had um, the offerings, but also everything that was supposed to be collected every year for the entire tribe of the Levites. 
That's a lot. That's much bigger than this room, probably. Right? And what he did is he, instead of do, putting all the things that are supposed to go in there, he got rid of all that, and he made a father-in-law suite for his father-in-law, who was the main enemy of the Israelites when they were rebuilding and they were going through revival, who had tried to get Nehemiah killed and lure him into a trap and ruin his integrity. That guy. Right? His family had intermarried with that guy, and then he gives him a place in the temple. This guy, Tobiah, he's not even allowed to enter the temple precincts. That's why the room had to be purified when he was taken out, right? And then Nehemiah is the opposite figure. He's like, uh-uh, uh-uh. And he violently sets things right, right? One of the things we need to remember is that sustained renewal must be led by zealous integrity. Sustained renewal has to be led by zealous integrity. Without zealous integrity, you can't, you can't have long-term renewal because corruption is too prevalent. In, um, in John 2, it says this. Jesus is going to Jerusalem around the Passover. It says, when, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus came up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting in tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me, which is a quote from Psalm 69. Right, one, in, the, in John's gospel, see, it's not really clear whether Jesus does this twice or once in his ministry. Because in John's gospel, he puts it in in chapter 2. Of course, none of the four gospels are strictly chronological. Okay. And then another gospel, it's at the end. It's right before his crucifixion. It's in, the, it's in Holy Week. So the question is, when does he do it? Well, it's possible he does it twice. It's also possible John just puts it at the front as one of the things that shows us in John's gospel the kind of person Jesus is right away. That Jesus is the kind of leader that is willing to take his life in his hands to do what's right. He is so focused on a zeal or a passion. Really, the word zeal is normally translated jealousy. It's, a, it's an emotional— anger that some—that devotion isn't being ordered the way devotion should be ordered, right? So if, if, if somebody that you love who's committed to you is showing devotion for somebody else, or somebody's trying to get them to give their devotion to that other person, right, the feeling you have, jealousy or zeal, is the, is the anger and anxiety that comes from seeing an imminent wrong ordering of devotion. And zeal is the, the desire, zeal would be the righteous desire, that that not be. Right? That we wouldn't, we wouldn't accept the corrupting power of wrongly ordered devotion. And so when Jesus comes into the temple and he sees all these things that are really turning the sacrificial system, instead of a system of devotion to God, into a system of making money from the people and crowding out the people in the very place of worship, in a place that's not supposed to have diffuse attention with birds flying everywhere and cattle and money, and blah, 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 but supposed to have singular attention, singing the songs of ascent as you go up to the place of God. Or the Gentiles, or people who weren't allowed in the temple precincts, they were allowed here, and it was a place of worship for them. But instead it was a market, and a market isn't exactly a contemplative zone of worship. Right? There's also— archaeological evidence that there were a lot of what were called mikvehs in that area, which were ceremonial baths that people would get into to wash themselves 
before, ceremonially before they would go up to the temple. You can imagine having cows and, and sheep and stuff in that area. Not exactly the kind of cleansing metaphor that we're looking for. Does that make sense? Now, there's a couple things that we have to realize if we're going to have a, a honest, realistic look at what leadership is like and how we can have leadership with integrity. Because you are— the hardest leadership of everybody's life is leading their own soul. You have to lead yourself. And that is the hardest thing you'll ever do, even if you run the world. If you become the leader of whatever, the planet, the hardest thing, even while leading the planet, is still going to be leading you. Do you understand? That never stops. And then everybody usually has some kind of leadership that's entrusted to them. We become a parent. We like are, are sh- even if you become like a shift manager, right, at some point in your life. Like, that's leadership. You're going to be trusted to do something, and you have some kind of power and authority and responsibility that you're supposed to execute with integrity rather than with corruption, right? Almost everybody gets to, to that at some point. Maybe you're just a big brother or a big sister, right? You're still in a position of influential authority, even if you don't have formal authority. The same rules of integrity and devotion and zeal apply. Do you understand? So one of the first things you have to understand, and many people are really naive about this, what you have to understand is leadership is inherently corrupting. Responsibility, authority, power is inherently corrupting when mixed with human beings, right? And so what that also means is when you find corruption in yourself, or when you experience corruption with others, or when you see that somebody was corrupt when you're watching the news, it's okay if it surprises you. It's okay if it surprises you, but it should never scandalize you. Remember from from three weeks ago, we talked about the word scandalize in Romans 14. To scandalize means to so harm somebody emotionally that they can't continue, right? Like if you hear that a Christian leader fails, and that doesn't just surprise you, it scandalizes you. It makes you cynical about the faith of whether or not God is real, or whether or not his word is true, whether or not there's—there can be integrity in the world. If that's what it does to you, you— You didn't just become more sophisticated. You were too naive to begin with. Do you understand? Because human beings are very corruptible creatures, and leadership is almost a perfect cocktail for corruption. So when you have a leader of any kind, including a Christian leader, who has a lot of authority, a lot of people look up to them, they have a lot of discretion, there's a lot of people who think they're fantastic, they get a lot of affirmation, right? There's certain things of ease that they're tempted by. There's all kinds of enticements. Like, the the fact that that would get inside that person is not surprising. In fact, I would argue there is no such thing as a Christian leader or a leader of any kind that you're going to interact with until you get to King Jesus that doesn't have some level of integrity. Or, I'm sorry, of lack of integrity. Like, look, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm the point leader for this church. I'm not the only leader. I'm the point leader. I am a corrupt leader. You need to understand that. I am a corrupt leader. I'm a corrupt pastor. I'm a corrupt father. I'm a corrupt husband. I'm a corrupt man. Now, one of the big questions in terms of the health of God's people and the health of everything is the dose of that corruption and the immune system fighting it back. The question is not, is the human you're looking at corrupt? The answer is always yes. The question is, what is the present dose of that corruption? And what is the immune system fighting that pathogen? That's the question, always. Now, I was talking to Linda Stanley. She is a uh, church consultant person that I've worked with a little bit recently. And I asked her about this with the, like, the Christian leaders that have come into 
public corruption. And I was like, hey, and because people are like, you know what we need for leaders? We need accountability. We need them to like have accountability partners and do accountability stuff with accountability things. Okay, let me just tell you. I don't know how I could get more accountability stuff in my life. All right, I meet, I meet every hour of the week. I meet with two elders and specifically ask these particular questions about certain things. I meet with a counselor fairly regularly. I have stuff on my computers that will tell my wife and the elder board if I look at pornography. Like, I, like I've got a bunch of stuff like working to try to keep me from growing corrupt, okay? But l- listen to what Linda says, somebody who's worked with dozens and dozens of high-level church leaders. She says, as for accountability, I have observed pastors that have put all kinds of safeguards, guardrails, accountability, partners, external accountability boards, etc., in place, only to hit the wall, burn out, fall from grace, and in a few situations, commit suicide. It wasn't that they didn't try to be accountable. The pressures and the demands became too much and they did not allow themselves to admit that and seek help. Some began to believe their own press and abused their power and influence. Call it a dysfunction of our society, man's sinful nature, pride, etc. It's the human condition, and it will keep happening. All that we consultants can do is try to help when it does. Do you see what she's saying? She's saying the thing that corrupts leaders is not just their unwillingness to have accountability. And accountability can only do one very small thing in enhancing integrity. If you think that having accountability is the answer for your integrity problems, you are naive. You do not understand how human corruption happens. You don't understand how people lie to themselves and others. How are people who we don't tell the truth to supposed to keep us accountable? The accountability person is just there that if you are willing to tell the truth, and if you are willing to tell the truth early enough, before you have lied to yourself sufficiently, they could help you. But if you won't help yourself and tell them the truth, they can't do anything. You shouldn't be comforted by the fact that I have all these accountability things in my life. I could just lie to all of them. I could buy another tablet and look at all the porn I want to and just not tell anybody. Right? I could, there's all kinds of ways I can get around the accountability in my life if I want to. If my soul isn't in a place of zealous purity, fighting with the immune system of the Spirit, working in character and virtue to fight in faith the constant growing corruption that seeks to invade me like an invasive disease. The question is not, is corruption there? And accountability won't save it. You can't put yourself in a disease bubble. You can't go through life wrapped in bubble wrap so much that you can't be hurt. Right? Sometimes people wonder— one of the things I find is sometimes if I can't persuade people how naturally corrupting leadership is, they don't really believe me. What they think is, is they think it's natural when you're young or when you're not in leadership to think that if you were in leadership, you would do better, right? Like, think about the—usually people feel free to to dislike politicians, right? I saw a list of, like, most and least trusted professions, and it kind of hurt my feelings that pastors were, like, kind of in the middle, you know, and, like, doctors were above us. Um, I kind of wish we'd go back to, like, you know, 550, where everybody hated doctors and thought pastors were great. But you, you can't do that. Um, all the way at the bottom is like congressmen, okay? So like think about a congressman that you were like really dislike. And the answer is, would you be better? Right? And the answer is, <laughs> right? Why is leadership naturally corrupted. The reason why this is important is for three reasons. One is so that you're not just generally naive about it. So you won't be scandalized. You might be surprised, but you won't be scandalized. But also, two, so that you will recognize that if you want to have leadership, and you're going to have some, the question is how much, 
If you want to grow in leadership, if you want to run things, if you want to be a boss, if you want to be a parent, if you want to be a leader in your church, you need to realize you need to prepare for leadership because you're going to enter into something that's inherently corrupting. It's like going out into a blizzard. Like, you can survive it. You can survive the blizzard. But you'd better be ready. <laughs> you'd better get the coats and the snow pants and the boots and the socks and the like little heater battery you can put inside your coat. Like, you want to get everything you're going to need so that you're ready. You need to know the corruption that's going to happen. Let me tell you a funny story about my kids, since they're in the room. So one of the things I, I like to take my kids outdoors, I like to take them hunting and stuff like that. I always secretly pack three times as many mittens and hats and insulation layers as I need in my bag. I tell them, listen, we're going to be in the snow or it's going to be windy. We don't know what's going to happen weather-wise. You need to be ready for this. You need to have extra batteries. You need to make sure you have a headlamp. You need to blah, 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 Eagle Scout, right? And they're like, okay, dad. And then they pack and they don't, they don't plan for, they plan for like exactly what they're expecting. But generally speaking, they don't plan for redundancies and they don't plan for things that are unexpected. So if anything fails, they don't have anything to back it up. And if something different happens, they don't have the right piece of equipment. So I'm like, so you don't have a hat? Really? Yeah, dad, do you have a hat? Yes, of course I have an extra hat. I'm your father. Now tell me you should have brought another hat. I should have brought another hat. Okay, here you go. Just over and over and over again, right? But this last—I'm okay, gonna have to—so I'm gonna say Rachel and Abby, so they're gonna get paid for this. Anytime I quote my kids, they get five dollars of your money, just so you know. It's—it's—yeah, it's a sermon expense, and it's one of the compensations they get for having to be a pastor's kid, okay? So they went out on—they went out on Valentine's Day, like, like little cocktail dresses and high heels with each other, right? And they're coming out after they did the four-course challenge or whatever it was called, and they're coming across the parking lot, and they see some guy, like, at the bank. He, like, he's trying to, like, get his little Dodge shadow out of the snow, and he clearly can't do it. And nobody's helping him because it's Madison. You should be able to take care of yourself. And they're like, we should help that guy. But here's the thing. They had listened. That whenever you take a car out in the snow, you should have enough in the car in case you have to walk two miles or help somebody which means snow pants and boots and extra socks and a jacket and gloves and blah, blah, blah. And they had them. So they go over their little cocktail dresses with their high heels. Hey, sir, would you like some help? And the guy's like. <laughs> and they're like, just give me a second. And they like go, they put on boots and snow pants over their cocktail dresses. And they push this guy out of the par mall parking lot. He drives off <laughs> bewildered, right? Because here's the thing. They understood the corruption they were going out into. It was winter. It was freezing. They didn't go out expecting it was going to be spring. And because of that, not only did they have what they needed to survive themselves and thrive, but they had the capacity to be leaders. They had the capacity to share with others their preparation so as so other people could overcome that which they were unprepared for. Because friends, people are so unprepared <laughs> for life and for change and for difficulty and for sin and for enticements and for so many things, right? And as you enter leadership, the things that are the natural difficulties of life are all the more powerful. So in leadership, there's authority is intoxicating, especially if you already want power. These are the four natural—if um, you remember like seven years ago, we did um, Gospel and Life by Tim Keller. He talked about the four basic idols of the human heart, right? Power, comfort or ease, affirmation, and control. You see, that's what we all want, but when you get into leadership, they all get enticed, especially because authority is naturally intoxicating, and if you already want power, guess what? And responsibility is exhausting. 
Look, if you take your responsibility seriously, it gets exhausting. And if what you really want is ease, being exhausted by responsibility is the opposite of what you want. So you really want to abdicate the authority in any way you can. And then exposure is intimidating. But like if what you want is people to affirm you, but you have to have integrity no matter what they think about you, no matter what they say to you, you have to do what you think is right even if they kill you, right? And so you, there's an incredible amount of exposure in leadership, right? And that's really intimidating because you don't know what these players are going to do. And if you, what you really want is affirmation, man, that's really corrupting. And then, right, the higher you get in leadership, the reason you're in that leadership is because that level of leadership exists because doing what that person does is too complicated for most people to do. And so there's an increasing level of complexity, which tends to be bewildering. And if what you want is control, you're trying to get control of something. You're, you're like the leader. You're trying to do it right. You're trying to get control of it. You're trying to get your arms around it. But actually the thing is more, and as you move up, it's more and more and more and more complicated to the point where you get to the point where you, you can't, you can't figure out a way to make this simple because at certain levels of complexity, there is no way to make it simple. I mean, I was thinking about this. You, some of you might not like this, this illustration. I really feel for the new district superintendent of the Madison School District. Right? I mean, Madison just, like, they think if they hire a competent African-American guy, he's, like, going to be our savior. And the poor guy, like, comes in, COVID hits, right? And who's he supposed to please? Right? Like, if the kids all stay home, kids fall further behind in school, right? If kids come back to school, the teachers all hate them because that means the teachers have to teach, right? Even within the African-American community, African-American kids are most likely to live in mixed homes age-wise, so they're more likely to have an elder in their home who has some kind of um, health thing that if they got COVID, they could die. But those are the kids most likely to do poor with distance education through computers. So do you try to get the kids to come to school where they might get COVID and kill their grandmother? Or do you leave them at home where they fall further behind when you were brought in to mainly decrease the difference in test scores between African-American kids and white kids? Right? And all the while, the teachers don't want to come in and teach because they don't want to be exposed to it. And how do you make that simple? There's no way to make that simple. There's no right answer. You can't win. I literally said this. This is kind of funny. I got invited to the clergy speaking because there were these consultants were talking to the whole community, right? About like, who should we get for the district? We want to listen to the faith community. And all these like pastors are like, we want somebody who cares about kids and blah, 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 blah. And they were like, Pastor Gibson, what do you think? And I was like, you really want to know what I, you don't want to know what I think. <laughs> and they're like, no, you're here. We want, to, we want to know what everybody thinks. We want to know what you think. I said, here's what I think. I think this is a fool's errand, is what I think. I think, here's what you need to look for. You need to look for a martyr. You need to look for somebody willing to die. That's what you need to look for. Because this person's going to get crucified by this city. I don't care who they are. I don't care what color they are. I don't care what education they have. I don't care what their politics are. I don't care what it is. This city's going to crucify them because they're not going to get what they want because it's impossible. And they're going to blame it on this guy because everybody wants to blame somebody because it's a quick fix that allows us all to keep our anxiety and feel okay again. You need to find somebody who's like a desert saint willing to die and be shot to death by arrows. That's what you need. You find that person, we'll be good. At least until we kill him, you know? <laughs> and so the first thing that happened, I, I sent him $100 of your money to some restaurant and a note. Listen, I'm really sorry you got this job. We are praying for you. I don't care what your politics is. I, we can talk about that sometime if you want. Here's a card from our church because, gosh, <laughs> love Pastor Nick. 
that's what happens in leadership is you get to levels of complexity where there's no answer, right? Okay, I'm like an eighth of the way through the sermon. We're out of time. <laughs> so, um, what, what we need to recognize is that— um, hold on. You can go back to this thing later if you want. Um, so if, if leadership is inherently corrupting, and if the people of God need good leadership, what are, you supposed to, what are we supposed to do? What are we going to do? Right? We need zealous integrity. What we get most often is swift corruption. Right? And even if we get somebody with really great integrity, that's one generation. In the Bible, you can count basically on one hand the number of people who have really strong, zealous integrity. Right? But God promises in the scriptures, he says, listen, I will provide a zealous shepherd. Right? That pure spiritual zeal is the only spiritual energy that reforms faster than sin corrupts. That's the important thing to recognize. Think about this. Pure spiritual zeal, a jealousy that our devotion would be right, is the immune system of spiritual integrity that limits corruption. You're you're gonna—just like we live in a world where there's all kinds of diseases all around us every day. Every day, thousands of diseases that are trying to kill you enter your body. You you do realize this, right? Thousands of different things come in, and then gravity's trying to crush your organs, and the weather's trying to kill you. Everything's trying to kill you. You understand this, right? And the issue is not mainly, is everything trying to kill you? Everything's trying to kill you. The issue is, how well can you withstand it? Right? How strong are you? How healthy are you? Like, there are some diseases you can't treat with medicine. All you can do is build up the natural immune system and build up how healthy somebody is. And the healthier you are, the better your body can cope with it. I remember we had a friend in Florida who had lupus. She's like, look, you can't cure lupus. She's like, all I can do is take care of my body. I can sleep. I can eat right. I can take certain vitamins. I can build up my own immune system. I can build up my own body. And that's really the best treatment for lupus. If I do that— my body's strong enough to handle it, and if I don't, it will destroy me. That's true for all of us, spiritually. Right? Sin in the flesh is such that it it has a natural corrupting progression. And either you have an immune system that can keep it at an isolated dose so that your system can tolerate its presence, or it's growing too much and it'll take over your system and ruin you, right? And the only way you can get it to to a dose that won't kill you is if your immune system is always trying to kill it putting sin to death, crucifying the flesh, Scripture calls it, right? And it is pure spiritual zeal that does that. And here's what we need to understand about it, is that—well, I need to click through some things here. I don't know why this doesn't work. Um, When Jesus flipped over all the tables in the temple courts, right— It's referred to as the cleansing of the temple, right? That's exactly what Nehemiah did. He got back from Babylon. He walked into the temple. He saw the corruption of Eliashib and Tobiah, and he threw the stuff out, and he commanded it to be cleansed. He cleansed the temple because the temple was the beating spiritual heart of the integrity of the new people of God in the new land, right? If this was corrupt, everything would be corrupt. This had to be jealously guarded, right? And then Jesus, similarly, right early in his ministry, as John portrays it, he comes in and he flips over these tables, and he seeks to cleanse the temple, right? And his, he said, it says his disciples remembered it was said. Now, I don't know if that means remembered like right then or remembered like much later. But they remembered reading in the Psalms, in Psalm 69, where David is, is crying out to God 
and he's saying, God, I am trying as best as I know how to live before you with integrity, real integrity. The problem is, is that everybody's trying to kill me for it. (laughs) And um, zeal for your house consumes me, right? And it's also consuming me. So in my heart, and so this is the question, okay? Here's the question. In order for you to have a chance at walking in spiritual integrity, in whatever your leadership, it requires that your heart is more consumed with a zeal for God's house, so to speak, the things of God, who God is. What, what Scripture calls in other places, seeking his, the, will, the, the desire to seek his face, right? Seeking the face of God is to look into his eyes, see him face to face, and adore him and experiences his worth as a person, not as an object, right? Most of us objectify God. We talk about objectifying women or something like that. Most of us objectify God and believe God objectifies us because we live in a transactional culture, right? We think that God will, will like us if we're good or if we do what he wants, right? We believe that's the kind of relationship we naturally have because that's how we see people treat each other. That's the belief that God objectifies you. It's actually a terrible, terrible, wicked heresy. God's not mad that you think that. He understands why we all think that. You understand? But he doesn't want us to think that. That's why he wants us to, as what scripture calls, seek his face. To so, to so understand and know him as a person and love him as a person, not an object, so that we begin to not objectify God and then it begins to occur to us that God has never objectified us and treats us as a person and someone he loves. So there's a thousand things to correct. Right? And when that begins to happen, we begin to be filled with his zeal, a zeal for his house, a zeal for who he is. And, and that, being consumed with that, has to be more powerful than the world's, than your fear of the world's consumption of you. All the way to the point of death. When it says uh, that Jesus, about Jesus, zeal for your house has consumed me, that word consumed is only used positively like once or twice in all the scriptures. Do you understand? That word, like when people come, there's this place where it says, I'm going to bring people against you and they're going to devour even your youngest goats. They're going to tear the hooves off of them, eat the hooves of your baby goats. They're just going to consume you so completely. You're going to be devoured till there's nothing left, right? And listen, that's what it means to, to not have freedom, to not have integrity. It's that that fear takes you. The fear that you're going to be devoured. The fear that somebody's going to—something or someone's going to consume you. That you're going to lose your happiness. That you're going to lose your life. That you're going to lose your good name. That you're going to lose something that you desire. You're going to lose your sense of control. You're going to lose your sense of knowing what's right. You're going to lose something you can't live without. And the problem is if there's anything you can't live without other than the face of God, then you're a slave. And it's an idol, and that will corrupt you. It's too much pathogen, and your immune system is broken down. You understand? But only when a zeal for your father's house consumes you, right, will nothing else ever consume you again. And that creates this immune system within you as in any stewardship that you have, whatever leadership you have, it creates an immune system in you that keeps pushing out, keeps fighting back against the corruption. And then you can add to it accountability, admonition, the help of others, getting a good night's sleep, <laughs> doing the sorts of things that help you even further. 
But without a zeal for your father's house that consumes you, you cannot escape corruption. You cannot have integrity in your leadership. You have to pattern yourself in all your passions after the one who everything he did was him being consumed by his father's face. Zeal for his house. To the point where they did take everything from him. They did take his youth and his good name and his clothing and his blood and his life. Because zeal for his father's work, which was to save you and me, consumed him. So that looking at someone who would devour even his little hooves, like would eat every last hair on his body, that would, that would spare nothing, that would be a fire that wouldn't even leave ashes behind, that that didn't, that didn't affect him as much as the consuming jealousy, the zeal he had to seek the face of the Father. People talk in church so much about like seeking God. You gotta seek God. You gotta know God. You gotta love God. You gotta seek God. You gotta seek God. You gotta have a pure heart. You gotta seek God. It's so hard to turn rabbit talk into meaning, right? But that's, somehow that's the place we have to find. We have to find the place where continually in our leaders, the zeal for our Father's house consumes us, right? And that produces everything good that it can produce, and it will produce, it'll teach you how to be a follower, because you'll know what it means to support somebody who's in leadership, because you'll understand it's naturally corrupting, it's really difficult to be a leader, and you'll stand with them, and you'll really support them. But it also, it also won't scandalize you if they fail. You'll also be able to say, I'm with you unless you go somewhere I can't follow you, because I will not corrupt myself if you corrupt yourself. Other than that, I'm with you. And every leader will feel that coming from you, that you're with them, unless they do something that you can't follow. And then you will never follow them. They'll also know that you won't keep your mouth shut. For Eliashib to do what he did, dozens if not hundreds of priests and Levites had to keep their mouth shut. Right? There's a direct, there was a direct and immediate complicity of a lot of spineless people for that to go on. And you'll realize that corruption feeds on silence because it lives on lies. And you will realize it's better to die than to be silent and let corruption grow on your watch. Solzhenitsyn said that, that the entire Soviet system, all the gulags, all the slaughter, all of the murder, all relied on the average Russian not telling the truth. That's it. All you had to do is get everybody to not tell the truth, and you could perpetrate anything. And all it really takes is a few people telling the truth to make a huge difference. But it'll make you not naive about the leadership you're headed into in your life, and you'll prepare for it like a blizzard. You'll be ready. You'll seek wisdom. You'll seek growth. You'll seek friendships. You'll seek, you'll seek discipleship. You'll seek knowledge. You'll read the scriptures. You'll, you'll pursue the truths of God and the wisdom of God like you know you need preparation for something because you're going to live outdoors. Right? We, we live inside with air conditioning, and we think the spiritual life is like that. It's not. You're living on the side of a mountain in your spiritual life. But we behave like the domesticated Madisonians that we actually are in our spiritual lives because we have air conditioning and we have tiled floors and heated blah, 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 blahs. You have to split those two up in your mind. You'll know when to hire a pastor, when to get rid of a pastor. You'll know what elders to nominate. And you'll grow in your joy in God because increasingly you will see his face. And there is nothing 
there is nothing, there's no greater pleasure than to be consumed with the face of God. Not only because you'll be disinterested in worldliness, but he'll actually show you the beauty in creation as he shows you the beauty in himself. Oh, Lord, there's a lot I wanted to say. More than that, a lot of practical things, a lot of stuff, and I told a couple of funny stories and said some things. And I pray that you would take this passage in Nehemiah 13 and this passage in John and through the small group discussions and through people's conversations after, after church and as they do the family devotions and personal devotions that they covenanted to, to do, like it says in our church covenant, that would they, you, would re, you would work this over their minds and their hearts and that they would be drawn to you in love and in life. And I pray now that as we, as we get ready to celebrate communion, that you would bring us back to the message of the cross, the Savior who was consumed for your house and so was, gave himself to be consumed for our sin so that we could not be consumed by damnation, but our hearts could be overflowingly blessed by being consumed with the beauty of your own face and your own house and your own kingdom. Holy Spirit, please, please affect us and make us sensible of these things with clarity in our minds and emotion in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. If you didn't get a